Section 20 of the Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13. William's English Policy, 1070 to 1087, Part 3. Let us, keeping these two points in view, try and trace the different results of feudalism in England and France. In France, the independence of the feudatories from the crown was practically all but complete. The nation resembled, in fact, rather a confederacy of independent princes than a united nation under one king. These feudal princes enjoyed all or nearly all royal rights, and proud of their independence affected to despise their weak overlord at Paris. Trusting to their own great power, they refused to unite, except in a fitful way with one another, and caring nothing for the classes below them, divided their lands among a host of inferior barons who might assist them against their king, and who joined with them in grinding down the lower classes. Hence arose isolation in every form. Isolation of one part of France from another, which checked the growth of national unity. Isolation amongst the nobles, which eventually contributed to their fall. Isolation between classes, military and non-military, which prevented any union. Law, too, never for years attained to the position of any real system. One half of France was called le pays du droit coutumier, clearly showing the absence of any definite system, and in the rest of France, le pays du droit écrit, the law was continually being evaded, altered, and destroyed by the anarchy which existed. Hence in France we see an utter absence of cohesion, an utter want of community of interests between all classes and all parts of the country. On this and out of this rose the power of the crown. Itself, the only organized power, it slowly but surely broke in upon the anarchy. The independent feudatories, prevented by their jealousy from uniting against the common foe, were either subdued or absorbed in detail. The people, seeking in the growth of the kingly power a defense from their hated overlords, joined the king, and while they contributed materially to the consolidation of his power, omitted in their hot haste to secure themselves against future extravagances of prerogative. When then, under Louis the Fourteenth, the crown had absorbed all the independent principalities, and the political influence of the nobles was gone, nothing remained to stay its despotism except the social privileges of the nobles, which rendered them hated while they were not feared, and led to their eventual overthrow. From this, England was saved by the wise policy of William. The nobles, deprived of their independence at the time of the conquest, struggled hard against their masters, rebelled continually, though without success, under William I, Rufus, and Henry I, who were thus forced in some measure to unite with the nation against them. Overthrowing the central authority, they triumphed for a short time under Stephen, but absolutely defeated under Henry II, were obliged to change their tactics. They now sought alliance with the classes below them, made common cause with them, and at their head marched forth under John and Henry III, 
to wrest constitutional and national privileges from an overgrown prerogative and to lay the basis of a free and limited government in which the interests of the whole nation were considered. Hence in England no great gulf existed between classes, between the military or noble and the non-military or ignoble. There was no difference in the eyes of the law between noble and commoner. A few privileges the nobles had, but none in any way onerous to the rest of the community, such as exemption from taxes as in France. They had to seek for this power by showing themselves worthy leaders of a great constitutional cause, by becoming the leading statesmen of the day, and winning the respect, if not always the love of the classes below them, who for a long time looked to them as their natural leaders against the king. While thus England was ruled by an aristocracy, it was an aristocracy which claimed no irksome privileges, and which in some measure represented the interests of the nation. Again, of all aristocracies, ours is the least exclusive and the most democratic. It is constantly receiving new members from the commonalty, whilst its younger branches are continually sinking into the ranks of the commonalty. Abroad, all sons of a noble belong to the nobility. In England, only the eldest son succeeds to the political privileges of his father, and the rest, with some slight social privileges, are counted as members of the commons. Thus the nobility and commonalty are welded together, and there is no broad line of division between the two, as is the case abroad. The whole nation, presenting a common resistance to arbitrary power, gradually encroached upon the irresponsible prerogative of its kings, and vindicated for itself national privileges, and England, having early passed her schooling days, started forth into vigorous manhood, receiving one valuable legacy at least from the hand of her stern schoolmaster, a thoroughly organized and fully developed system of law which might form the principal round which to rally and save her from the ills of anarchy and disunion. This is the course of English history, and many of its peculiarities may be derived from the fact that feudalism was introduced in so modified a form by William the Conqueror. To sum up what has been said, in France the crown began in weakness and ended in despotism. In England, it began in strength and ended in a limited monarchy. The importance of ecclesiastical history in early times is very great. The ecclesiastics were not only the spiritual teachers of the people, the moral, social, and educational organizers of society, they were the statesmen, the lawyers, diplomatists, the writers, architects, and even sometimes the warriors of the times. The Church was the real avenue to power and influence in every department of intellectual life, the only avenue for poor but able men. Elsewhere the path was hedged up by the privileges of an aristocracy. Here they found scope for their genius and ambition, and rose with rapid strides by mere force of mind to the highest positions of the state. When to this is added the influence of the monasteries, which has already been mentioned, it will be clear that there was absolutely no department of active life which the Church did not interpenetrate, and in which churchmen did not take the lead. The Church was an all-pervading and animating energy, quickening the whole social and political system, 
and formed the intellectual starting point of the age. It was therefore most necessary that William should turn his attention to the improvement of the Anglo-Saxon church. Much moreover was needed. At the time of the Norman conquest, the Anglo-Saxon church, after having contributed not a little to the growth of national unity and given its aid in the local organization of the country, had fallen somewhat behind the standard of the time. The discipline, the morals, and the intelligence of the secular clergy had been relaxed. Most of them were married, contrary to the opinions of those days, and there was even danger of their becoming a close hereditary caste, holding their possessions as so much family property descending from father to son, and thereby forgetting the trust character of the church revenues. It had been mainly with the view of reforming the English church and drawing it closer to Rome that the Pope had sanctioned the expedition of William. The question was, how far would William comply? To understand clearly the meaning of William's reforms in this respect, it is necessary to say a few words on the great ecclesiastical system of Gregory Seventh, who at this time sat on the papal throne. Feudalism, the first definite scheme after the fall of the empire of Charlemagne for organizing political society, had hopelessly failed. The only possible means by which it could have succeeded was by maintaining intact the mutual duties of overlord, underlord, vassal, and villain. These, once destroyed, feudalism became a mere excuse for perpetual quarrels between the barons and for intolerable oppressions of the despised non-military classes. All cohesion in the European state system was destroyed, and society and government, except under the temporary rule of some great man, were little more than legalized anarchy. Europe, cursed by this system, was losing all knowledge of its own unity, all strength, and rapidly drifting into meaningless, pitiless antagonism of nations, classes, and individuals. It was from the clergy, or rather from the monasteries, that the opposition to this state of things arose. From the monasteries the impulse was communicated to the bishops, and from the bishops to the popes, who take up the work and try to give it principle and organization. During the ninth century, the papacy had fallen a victim to the evils abroad and sank in degradation and contempt. Raised in the tenth century from this degradation by Otto I and his successors, she rapidly regained lost ground under the German popes and rose daily to higher aspirations, to culminate in the accession of Gregory Seventh in 1073. This man, under the name of Hildebrand, had long held an important position in Europe. Son of a Tuscan carpenter, he had early embraced monasticism and as the monk of Cluny in Burgundy had subjected himself to the discipline of the Benedictine rule. Returning to Rome, he became the great pope-maker of his day, contributed to the election of five of his predecessors, and directed the papal policy. On the death of Alexander II in 1073, the papal tiara, to which he had never aspired, was laid at his feet, and abandoning the seclusion of monastic life, he ascended the papal throne, prepared to subdue the world in the same spirit in which he had hitherto striven to conquer himself. 
under Gregory VII, the schemes which had steadily been growing were perfected, and monasticism in his election rose to her highest fortune. Gregory VII, seeing the conflicting principles at work in Europe, the chaotic confusion, the triumph of cruelty and disorder, conceived the magnificent idea of a great spiritual autocracy which should serve as a principle of unity round which Europe might gather, and a force which should join together rival classes and interests. The Pope was to be the supreme head of Christendom and ultimate arbiter of her affairs. To him should all appeals be made on international questions, on questions of peace and war, while within the states his authority should watch over the inferior courts and see justice done. Elsewhere, violence and fraud might run wild, but here at Rome at least, all questions should be decided on the highest grounds of equity and morality. Other tribunals might be open only to the rich and powerful. Here, all should gain a hearing. Elsewhere, wickedness in high places might escape punishment, but here morality should be enforced on kings as well as on subjects, and the proudest criminal reduced to submission. Thus might the truce of God in time extend all over Europe, and wars be made to cease. Thus might the weak find aid against the strong, and right maintain itself against might, while Europe, united in the confession of one faith, might here see reflected the image of its unity and its majesty. This magnificent ideal, it has been well said, was crossed by human frailty even in Gregory's days. Subsequently, it was fatally degraded and discredited by the selfish and faithless temporizing, the shameless greediness which grew into proverbs, wherever the name of Rome was mentioned. It was maintained by shameful means and shameless forgeries, which escaped detection from the uncritical eye of Europe at that time. The power grew to be abused, to usurp the powers to which it was to have served as a counterpoise. It went through the usual course of successful power in human hands, and in every succeeding century these things grew worse. The ideal became more and more a shadow, the reality a more corrupt and intolerable mockery but it still remains the most magnificent failure in human history. Such was the ideal conceived and partly realized by Gregory VII. Let us consider what was necessary to its realization. First, the sovereigns of Europe must be induced, if possible, to do homage to the Pope, for naturally the scheme took the feudal shape, which then predominated, and without such subordination the scheme could not work. Then, the celibacy of the clergy must be enforced, whereby they might become a separate order, freed from secular interests, and connected closely with the Pope. The ecclesiastical courts in each separate state must be made independent of the secular, and secured in their jurisdiction over all clerks, and in all causes affecting morality and religion. Lay investiture, investing the bishop with the ring and the crozier, must be condemned, lest the clergy should become dependent upon the secular arm, and simony and servility enervate them. Thus the clergy, bound to the Pope by the ties of interest and devotion, would be a ready instrument in his hand for carrying out his schemes. 
These were the principles of Gregory's plan which he was vigorously pressing upon Europe, and which he now hoped to see carried out in England. William was not unwilling in most respects to satisfy his wishes. His policy may for clearness be classed under two heads. One, the relation of the church to the state, and two, the relation of church and state to Rome. 1. In Anglo-Saxon times, the church and state had been closely connected. The bishops had sat side by side with the secular officers in the shire court. The Wittangamote had been as much an ecclesiastical as a secular assembly. Its laws, indeed, had been rather ecclesiastical canons than secular laws. This William altered. Fully aware of the importance of the church as a department of state, as a principle of order, he conceived the idea of using it as a counterbalance to the feudal barons, ever ready to overthrow the central authority of the crown and establish their own selfish independence. Hence his first care was to reform the church and increase its power. Stigand, the Archbishop of Canterbury, convicted of illegally holding the see of Winchester with his own archbishopric, and of having received the pallium, the symbol of his metropolitan power, from the false Pope Benedict X, was removed, and most of the Anglo-Saxon bishops shared his fate. In their place, William sought Europe over four worthy substitutes. Lanfranc called from Normandy, where he had been made abbot of William's monastery of St. Stephen at Caen, was appointed archbishop, and under him the reform was continued. The supremacy of Canterbury over York was asserted. Marriage of the clergy was discouraged. The already married clergy were tolerated, but future marriages were strictly prohibited. In the chapters, monks were substituted for the secular canons. The monasteries were reformed according to the stricter rules of the Norman monasteries to which Langfranc had been accustomed. Having thus reformed the worst abuses of the church, William proceeded to increase its power. Two of the bishops, Durham and Kent, were entrusted with counties palatine. Many of the village bishops were removed into fortified towns that they might be better able to resist the feudal nobles. The see of Lichfield was removed to Chester, Sherborne to Salisbury, Selsey to Chichester, Dorchester in Oxfordshire to Lincoln. The leading clergy were called to William's councils, and frequently appointed to the office of justiciary and others, while the chancellor was invariably an ecclesiastic. Lastly, William removed the bishop from the county court and erected ecclesiastical courts in each diocese. To these, the bishop alone presided over all cases which affected the spiritual or church interests. 2. So far, William fell in with Gregory's scheme and reorganized the English church. But this was not all that Gregory claimed. He demanded the homage of the king. This William would not grant. Friendly relations with Rome he was anxious to maintain, and the tax of Peter's pence he would gladly pay. He would even acknowledge the general supremacy of the pope. But the oath of homage he would not take, for neither said he had he ever promised so to do, nor had his predecessors done so. And Gregory, anxious to secure his friendship, dared not press the question of investiture. The general character of his policy is summed up in the so-called customs. 
By these, he ordered that the king's leave must be obtained before any pope were acknowledged in England, before any papal synod were held, any letter of the popes received, before any bishop appealed to Rome or any tenant in Capite, those who held their lands immediately of the king, were excommunicated. Thus William clearly showed himself determined to rule the Church of England, and against the great scheme of Gregory Seventh asserted a contrary one, that of a national church, owing indeed a nominal allegiance to Rome, closely assimilated to her in doctrine, ritual, and organization, but still absolutely under the power of the crown. In all this, William was heartily supported by the vigorous common sense of Longfranc, and Gregory had his hands too full in pressing his claims on the emperor, Henry IV, to quarrel with William on the subject. Thus, during William's time, the system was firmly established, and no quarrel arose till the reigns of his successors. The policy of William, it can hardly be doubted, was on the whole beneficial. The abuses of the Anglo-Saxon church were removed, Norman bishops were certainly better educated, and it was well that the church should be brought into closer connection with Rome, which, with all its faults, was the real source of vigor at that date. Under their influence, the activity of the church revived, while her discipline was improved. In the increased power of the church, a valuable balance was found to that of the feudal baronage, while the church itself was kept in check by the unqualified authority of the king. In all these ways, William's changes were for the good, but in two ways they did harm. 1. The right of royal patronage, though fairly administered by William, was under his immediate successor shamefully abused, and 2. In William's ordinance erecting the spiritual courts lay the foundation of many a serious quarrel in aftertimes. His error here is to be found not so much in erecting the courts as in not more clearly defining the limits of their jurisdiction. During his own reign this caused no difficulty, but very soon the ecclesiastical courts began to encroach upon the temporal. In these encroachments the churchmen were not indeed actuated entirely by selfish motives or by narrow professional motives. Owing to the more perfect system of procedure established in their courts, they became exceedingly popular, and people flocked of their own accord to the bishop's court. But the result was most pernicious. The jurisdiction of the ecclesiastical courts grew apace and infringed on that of the temporal. The clergy's privilege of being tried by these courts alone threatened to render them absolutely independent of the secular arm, and finally, under Henry II, the abuses were so flagrant that Henry interfered and fought his fatal quarrel with Becket on this very point. End of section 20